VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. everyone and a thousand welcomes to The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times and you, I know what you're thinking already, what have you done with Alfie? Well, Alfie's legged it like Brian McNeese, no not really, um, everyone's favourite Ruck producer turned presenter is on a well-earned holiday, so you're lumped with me, Will Kelleher, but we're not lumped really because we've got two great guests with us this morning and there's much to discuss of course after round two of the Six Nations. And first up, it's the Barnes bomber, Owen Slot, and with him is the bomber called Barnes, Stuart Barnes. How's it going, lads? That's really clever the way you did that. <laughs> that was that was that ten minutes I was writing notes before we started recording. <laughs> How's it going, Slot? Are you right? Um, yeah, I, Barnes is spotted from the uh, from the video of the call that I'm in, I'm in my shed <clears throat> with lots of layers on because I forgot to turn the heating up. So. I'm going, to, I'm going to try and come over warm and friendly, but I might struggle. Okay. It's first world problems of not having heating in a shed. Stuart, how's yours? You've got um, all sorts of records and stuff in the, in the background there. Yeah, but what I haven't got is my hanging guitar. During COVID, I love the people who go on, turn up on the news, and they had a guitar, and the really sophisticated ones were the ones who had the guitar just, just in shot. So they were so cool, they weren't telling you. They had a Rickenbacker guitar. I like that a lot. But no, there's hats, books, and a few CDs. But yeah, and we can and we can see your road. We can see your road bike, Barnsley. That's that's like showing off, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, sort of. But this is in fact um, my rugby room. There's uh, yeah, there's something here about work. I don't know where. <laughs> okay, lads. Well, we'll we'll get into the the ins and outs and the wise wherefores of the weekend in a bit, but. As a, as a set of three, we'll start with you, Stuart. Did you enjoy the weekend? Did you find some joy in there? Well, I always enjoyed the weekend. Um, I didn't think it was inspiring in terms of the quality of the rugby. Uh, there were two close matches, which helps if you like a close match. And there was one non-close match where you saw a country... Um, that it's really on top of its game. Ireland rested half a team or so, and they looked to know exactly what they were doing in a way that the other four teams didn't. And that's that's interesting with three rounds to go. Slotty, what you you wrote a big piece about reconnecting with fans at Twickenham and all that sort of stuff in in Monday's Times. Did you find yourself connected to the Jamie George project? I found myself really wanting to. I so want this thing to work. Um, because I, I, I so like Jamie's uh, will and the way he's thrown in himself into it and the fact that, that, that he's presenting such a, a, a friendly face of England rugby. But, but um, I, I think the, the, the bottom line is to, to, to win friends, you, you can't just play Hey Jude and Wonderwall. You, ha- you have to play some decent rugby as well. And, and that kind of is where England is still struggling. I mean, no one's, no one's pretending otherwise. Um, but But... Yeah, I I was shazamming the um all the tunes that they were playing during the during the match <laughs> to be on top to be on completely on top of the playlist. But but ultimately it was um it, it was offloads and drop balls that that uh, that were the problem. Yeah, wasn't it? yeah. I think a few of our, our esteemed commenters under your piece have noticed that the holding out for the hero that's a Welsh songstress Bonnie Tyler, isn't it? So that didn't quite work the, <laughs> as they came off the bus. <laughs> Oh God! You don't you love the commentate the commenters <laughs> under our pieces? What's on the Barnes playlist? If you if you took charge at Twickenham, Stuart, what would what would be on your DJ set? Well, I'm a realist, so Desolation Row by Bob Dylan, Twelve Minutes of Misery. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, it's sort of how England are playing without the sexy little Spanish guitar that gives it something <laughs> unique. Um, um, but that was 1965, and I got to say. When I hear Hey Jude, I'm thinking, hey boys, 
come on, we can we can do better than this. Um, I, I'd go to a bit of Americana, country music, Jason Isbell. Um, that's what it would be where I am. But I don't think I don't think I'm in, tuned in to the majority of the Twickenham crowd. So I don't think this is a project where my view it counts. But no, definitely no. Desolation Rome. <laughs> yeah, I think that the new Twickenham experience is not quite aimed at journalists in the press box, is it? But there you go. Um, we, we'll get into the rugby in a sec, and we're going to go into round two of the Six Nations with wins for Ireland, England and France. Yes, France. And that France win was the most newsy one of the weekend. So let's start there. And before we met up with Slotty and Barnsley, I'd caught up with Mark Palmer, our Scottish guru. So let's see how he's doing and if Scotland ex- actually still exists after that controversial end of that game. Right, Mark Palmer, before we start, do you mind just poking your head out the window and checking if Scotland still exists on Monday morning? <laughs> we haven't quite burnt it to the ground yet, but uh, it, it didn't Not feel imploded. far off. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes, wow, Mark. Um, firstly, and this is a very sort of journo to journo point, how was the On The Whistle match report? doing that <laughs> it, or did it, it help like, he had five minutes of tmoing well exactly it was still i think five minutes after the whistle but yeah that was a, a tear up job um and as you say it, you know it, it's one of those where it goes from completely one thing to completely another so there's not really any middle ground so it's a rip it up and start again <laughs> yeah wow so listeners who think we've got an easy job um yeah try and write an on the whistle match report where the result has changed with the final play of the game <laughs> and then come back and complain to us um okay so should we let's get into it then um safe to say that decision has gone down like a cu- cup of whole, cold sick in Scotland <laughs> And listeners, I'll, I'll bring you into our Ruck WhatsApp chat. Mark this morning has even changed the picture of it to the incontrovertible evidence that the ball definitely was grounded. Um, so look, I'm going to wind you up and let you go here, Mark. <laughs> First, for, for the two people left on earth who, who haven't seen what happened, can you explain what happened and then just give us your take on all of it? So, um, with France winning 2016, going into the the, 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 well, the the clock was just about to go into the red, Scotland are hammering away on the line through the forwards, um, big pile of bodies, Sam Skinner reaches out and believes, well, and, and the pitch will show that he got the ball onto the, um, onto the whitewash. Um, there is a boot in amongst this pile of bodies belonging, a nice vivid yellow one, which we then worked out belonged to Joram uh, Moifana, the French substitute. Uh, so the ball initially kind of gets jammed and wedged up against that and then slides off onto the uh, onto the grass, onto the whitewash. Uh, so uh, ought to have been given as a try, is, is the view of five million people <laughs> north of the border. Um Crucially, the referee, on-field referee Nick Berry says uh, his on-field decision is no try, at which point there needs to be incontrovertible evidence uh, to the contrary to, to overturn that call when it goes to the to the TMO. Uh, uh, Brian McNeese, a uh, long conversation between the two, uh, multiple angles studied as, as is normal practice. Um, they, they get to the angle that that shows well that clears to show to most clearly shows to most people's eyes that the ball does make contact with the grass, uh, and and the, the conversation they both appear to agree at that point that they have seen that the ball makes contact with the grass and that the the, the conclusive evidence has been given that the try should be awarded, but then this is a point that is at this point unexplained. There's then a call to to review another angle and to, to kind of make sure, or I can't remember the exact wording, but it, it it goes to a point of actually no, we need to go back and have another look at this, and it, it seems to go. The call then seems to be made on the the, the basis of the the angle that shows the, the ball against Moifana's boot. So that is the bit that I think that probably really sticks in everyone's craw is that you know the, the the correct decision appears to have been reached and then for for reasons unexplained they they go back to what appears an incorrect decision so um you know when we talk about you know VAR VTMO football re rugby it's it's often you know rugby's often held, held up as this exemplar of you know of good practice and how things are communicated to fans in the stadium, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, you know, there, there is more proof that, you know, we can still tie ourselves in, in mighty knots when we put our minds to it as well. <laughs> yeah. 
just a bit. Did yeah. that sum it up? And, <laughs> kind of, yeah. And, and Greg, I was reading your um, news piece you filed for the Sunday Times and in there, Greg Townsend saying, we were celebrating in the coach's box, having seen the pictures of the ball being placed down the try line. He had Gavin Hastings turning around to him in front of him going, that's that's a try. They were telling each other it was a try. You were tweeting that there was a, a man clambering over seats in the stadium, literally pointing at the screen going like, that's where it's grounded. Yes, I've never was seen it, Was it a, like such it. a chaotic scene? It was. I mean, you know, you've sat in that, that press box many a time. We were literally, you know, two rows in front of the, the Scotland coaches and there, there's no glass in there separating us from them so you can you can actually hear the conversations and you know fr- from an early stage they, they were adamant that it was a score and of course they're going to be but you know that you could hear that sort of um confidence growing with each um with each replay so th- they definitely were surprised when it wasn't given put it that way <laughs> yeah just a bit yeah i mean personally we we were watching it we were waiting for the wales england game at twickenham and we was we were sitting there going i wonder how Gregor Townsend will react to this. Does he go, oh, well, you know, we should have won the game and should have not come down to that moment, or is he going to come in raging? And clearly he was raging. He was. <laughs> but in a controlled yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was impressed with, you know, how he carried himself because, you know, the, having been very publicly critical of the referee last weekend, Ben O'Keefe in Cardiff, where he, he had this huge penalty count against Scotland and a, a run of 14 consecutive penalties, which, you know, he described as anomalous, unprecedented, lots of other and other terms. This time came in and, um, you know, was controlled, made his point and kind of left us to fill in the blanks uh, as to just quite how angry he was and you could do that easily from from his demeanour but the he did make the point and you know it's an utterly valid one that you know we should all be stressing as well that it should never have got down to that kind of uh, small detail Scotland were hugely in control of that game in the first half you know and that, that, they will look back on that spell sort of 10 minutes spell leading up to half time you know where there's a yellow card where there's heavy pressure on the French line uh, and they actually end up conceding a scrum penalty and, and letting France out so they didn't make dominance count when when they could have on the scoreboard, and and ultimately that's what cost them. You know, that's one of the things that cost them the game. Uh, before we get down to the the detail of the, of the officiating, yeah, I mean, so on this officiating thing, we we try and be constructive, don't we? We don't just try and say, mm. "Oh, this was a rubbish decision." There you go. So, trying to think of ways we can improve it or um, changes that can be made that make something like that not happen again. Um, I mean, Nigel Owens was there as the BBC sort of referee guru saying he wasn't absolutely certain maybe that it was grounded. So you can't overturn it if the initial question or the initial sort of soft signal, as they would say in cricket, is not out, I suppose. So it's Um, the umpire's call. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But but is it one of those that's it's that duck test, isn't it? If it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck. It's probably a try. It just... It just sort of looked right that it was a try, didn't it? I don't know how we can maybe apply some sort of common sense rule to the to the law there, which is probably a dangerous thing. It's, it's, it's difficult, human beings, and, isn't it? You know, but you know that that ball would have had to d- defy the laws of physics to have had anything else to have not been grounded from from, from those shots. So, you know, and and it does feel we're kind of creeping into that VAR territory of you know, are we looking for reasons to not award tries to not to not you know and. Is that the sort of is that the game that we want to encourage? Most people, I would I would argue, would would suggest not. Um, so, as I say, it's that great unexplained bit of why they appear to get to one decision and then revert to the previous one. That I think, well, you know, I, I don't know if that World Rugby come out and explain it would help there. But again, I don't know how they will explain it because it, it seems almost inexplicable. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think we're probably in one of those situations that's a bit of an intractable problem, really. Yeah. So just to sort of explain to, to the listeners who may be dipping in and out for the Six Nations and don't watch loads and loads and more of club rugby, essentially with a decision like this, there there has to be a sort of on-field decision. Yeah. Um, and Nick Berry's on-field decision was that it wasn't a try. So in order for it to be overturned, it has to be absolutely stone-cold evidence that there was a try. And I guess where they got to after about five minutes was that there wasn't, even though during, as you said, the clips they saw, there was a moment where Brian McNeese, the TMO, said the ball's on the ground, it is, he, basically. Yeah, yeah. So so, so this was an Alan Dimmock idea, friend of the ruck. We were, we were having a, a beer after the England game in Richmond and just chatting about what we do next. And his idea was 
Is there some sort of like rugby overlord, benign dictator figure who makes a decree that says, let's make positive decisions and benefit the doubt goes to the attack in things like this? Like, I don't know. Is there a way? It's obviously opening a bit of a can of worms, but when it's a 50-50, it goes to try rather than not a try. As you were saying, are we finding ways of denying things rather than saying, well, actually, let's just give it. I think there's there's certainly an argument for that, and you know it certainly used to be the case in in football with the offside law that you'd you know it was you know benefited out to the attacker etc. Try and encourage positive play. In in a world, you know, in a world where we have so many angles instantly available, stuff gets clipped up within seconds, screenshots shared all over social media. You know, these things. Are there actually shades of grey in a decision like that? Is it, is it, or is it just right or wrong? I mean, there's so many millions of decisions within a rugby match that are subjective, and there are hundred shades of grey. You know, with 250 breakdowns, you could probably identify four penalisable offences at each one. But with something like that, you know, I'm not convinced there is a massive excuse for getting it wrong. Yeah, I mean, two things I would like to see: sort of future of rugby. Um, Firstly, we have the smart ball, don't we? And at the moment, it can't judge whether there's downward pressure, which I know is not really in the laws of scoring tries anymore, but it's the phrase that people have used for years, isn't it? Um, but it can judge whether the ball is physically over the yeah. whitewash like in its position, but it's not yet being used to help refereeing decisions. So maybe in the future, there's some, some sort of pressure marker or something that says, well, that ball was definitely touching the ground. Um because I know, having spoken to some of those people that do the smart ball stuff, they were saying that that it can't actually work out yet whether it's ball, leg, grass, or exactly. Ball, grass, yeah, leg that's kind of thing. Yeah, it has to be able to work out what it's actually touching, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, and it, yeah. And again, where things stand at the moment, it might not have been a massive help initially, certainly when the ball's jammed against Mufana's foot. But then, yeah. then when it slides the, off the, onto the, the grass, other one, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other one is that we. Rugby's been using Hawkeye for a long time, which people will know is used in tennis and is used in cricket for decisions. Um, and I don't know whether there's some sort of AI or some sort of, uh, I don't know, virtual thing where you can almost deconstruct the bodies on the floor and take them out. So then it shows, OK, yes, there was something underneath it or not. I mean, that that feels like a bit futuristic, but... And also a bit Maybe retro. Maybe down a rabbit warren too far indeed, with all it, these bits of technology. It also feels retro in terms of the you know the referees physically picking bodies off the off the pile yeah. to see who who ends up at the bottom. But um, it's like, right, everyone stay where you were. Exactly. Don't move. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, and, and yeah, Nick Berry was in the perfect position, you know, on field to judge. Mm, um, you yeah. know, we've seen shots of that where he's you know he's got a clear line of sight and in, in, into that into that melee and. So, yeah, it's just frustrating that we, you know, again, we end the match talking about officials and a decision rather yeah. than everything that went before it. Yeah, well, let's park it there and you perfectly segue to let's actually talk about the the rest of the 80. Um, is it too reductive to say that Scotland should have just won it anyway and put put France away? It is reductive, but I'm not. I'm not convinced it's overly reductive. You know, they, 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 as we we said earlier in the conversation, that first half Scotland were were very good. I thought for the most part, um, physically is where they've come up short against France in the past. But actually, that element was excellent, much like in the first half in Cardiff last weekend. They were meeting meeting France on the gain line, uh, smashing them back. Um, you know, France only really seemed to play when when Gail Fuku got involved. Um, the the set piece, which again had been a concern against Wales, particularly the line out was was so much better. Lot lot of pressure on the French throw. Um, Finn Russell was was creating opportunities for that with some excellent touch finders. So so things tactically were going well. Um, they they just didn't take advantage again of that 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 spell of concerted pressure augmented by a yellow card for Antonio. Um, and you know, even late on, uh, when they're hammering away at the line, there there was a situation where you know Kyle Rowe was in about a friend of the pod was in about uh, forty meters of space out wide, and they just couldn't get the ball to him. Uh, so, so they will look back and identify numerous missed opportunities to really, you know, have. And, and Gregor was 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 kind of man enough to say that at the end that you know. They should have been in a position where you know they should have taken this out of any officials' hands long before it got into that situation. So, um, you know, 
again, much like Cardiff, plenty of positive things, but you know, ultimately some fatal flaws in there as well. We will move on to talking about France in a second, but just from the Scottish perspective, is that kind of title out the question now with the fact that Dublin is the last game? It kind of feels that way, doesn't it? And, you know, that's what makes the this England game uh, on February 24th so pivotal again because, you know, they've, they've done well on that fixture as we've, we've talked numerous times about on this on this pod. Um, you know, win that again, they have Italy in round four, which you would like to think would be another win. So at least then you'd be going to Dublin on that final weekend, not with any great expectation, but with the chance to play for something, whether it's a title or a triple crown, whatever it would be. Um, so it feels like the title is a very long shot now just because Scotland have found Ireland an impossible nut to crack, particularly in Dublin. So, um, But, you know, it's certainly not uh, the end of the road for them in terms of this campaign. Yeah, yeah. I don't want this to sound patronising, but I, was, I, I felt sad that Scotland had lost that just because I thought a two-week build-up to a Calcutta mm. Cup with England and Scotland both two from two would have been awesome. Like England don't go up there and win these days. And so that would have been quite fun, wouldn't it, to have got into that with two teams who haven't lost. I'm sure we'll manage to talk it up anyway, Will. I'm sure we always find a way. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, exactly. We'll get Ryan Wilson to talk about his tunnel. and Indeed. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it is going to be a really fascinating game. That you know, There has to come a yeah. point when that record ends. But, you know, and this England team certainly appear to be on an upwards trajectory. But again, you could probably make a case for saying that Scotland are too. So, yeah, both of them still will feel that there's, there's plenty road ahead of them in this championship. And, and I think that game is going to be a fantastic long battle. So for Scotland, do you think this fallow week, especially after the end of that game, comes at an annoying time or a good time? Do they sort of simmer and build this fury for a couple of weeks and then come absolutely roaring out the gates at Murrayfield when England come? Or, I don't know, does it pop the balloon too much and it's it's a big effort to come back from something so gutting as that? I think there's possibly a bit of both, and we kind of put the first theory to Gregor last night about, um, or sorry, on Saturday night about his, um, uh, you know, whether they can use this as kind of fuel for the fire in terms of building up that England game, and he he knocked that back saying, well, actually, you know, essentially saying if you need any additional factor to get up for an England game, you're you're in the wrong place. So um, he didn't seem to be suggesting he would make any great play on that. But you know, the, the the players are human beings. They they will be kind of stewing on that for for some time, um, and you know, it, it, it's never necessarily a bad thing to feel that the world's against you going into a big match like that. So um, I'm I'm sure you know, even internally, whether it's the players themselves, there, there will be a bit of a bit of leaning on that. So let's talk about France briefly then as well, because I mean they've they've wrestled themselves back by hook or by crook. Um, up close and personal, are they the France that you've seen in the last couple of years or are they a f- few levels off without DuPont and everything else? I think yeah, the, very much the latter. And, you know, there's, there's no side in, in, the, in the history of rugby that wouldn't suffer the absence of, of Antoine DuPont. But even allowing for that, I still felt they were very kind of uh, pedestrian and unambitious for the most part at Murrayfield. Although, you know, as we saw with their tries, they can still rip you open at a, a minute's notice if, uh, you know, if the mood takes them. But, you know, particularly in that kind of grim third quarter spell where, we, you know, one of, the, one of these increasingly common bouts of kick tennis kind of took hold, it was just... Mm. Um, a fairly miserable spectacle and to be honest I was quite, I was quite glad that the crowd made their, their feelings perfectly clear on that because um, you know when you're paying 150 quid a ticket that, that's not what you're coming to watch is it so um, it's um, again they're potentially you know as with French teams in the past they probably expected to turn up and be able to really dominate Scotland physically they, they didn't do that and then when that wasn't a possibility I didn't see them have any Great other great avenues to go. I see apart from bits of individual brilliance, particularly driven by by Fiku, um, but um, and, and Jalabert, Although I, I think he's had a really good season and has proved they're more than able able kind of uh, stand in for um, for Intermac, uh, who's still out injured as we know. It just didn't quite have the same spark, um, and, and certainly the, 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 our French uh, colleagues were, were getting well stuck into him at the finish. So uh, the, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they look at, at the moment a kind of pale shadow of the team that we saw coming into that World Cup. So whether that's a hangover effect, they're still kind of mourning that campaign, but. 
you know, they've now got a win on the board by hook or crook, so, you know, the, the back in contention in, in some shape or form. And this is why we love the Six Nations, isn't it? It's 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 a crazy so old dynamic. tournament because Scotland win that game, they're two from two, they're dreaming of slams and everything else, And but now France have won it, and you think, well, France have now got Italy, who they shouldn't really lose to, and though they got close last time. Then they've got um, Wales away, and Wales pretty callow team at the moment although they did all right at Twickenham and then they're hosting England who haven't looked that great shakes themselves so you think that's only then one defeat four wins if Ireland slip up they could win the title it's, it's exactly yeah. crazy old tournament isn't it how it swings it, it does and you know you know I think I've now said that you know Cardiff was the pivotal game for Scotland's championship this was a pivotal game and, and now it's England it just you know the, the narratives change so Every quickly week. it's uh it's such a dynamic tournament and as you say that's why we love it so much so yeah, um, France will, will consider themselves back in the mix, as you say, particularly with that run of fixtures coming up. So, yes, uh, it, it might not yet be the procession to the title for Ireland that we all expect. Yeah, well, let's see. Look, Mark, I'll let you go back and uh, go and stare at a wall for a bit longer. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, Try and recover. God, what a weekend. Um, yeah, hope your laptop survived a, a, a bashing at the end of that game. <laughs> Just about. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Okay, so that was Mark Palmer up in Scotland, uh, drowning several sorrows. Um, Slotty, come to you on that on that try, no try. Was it? Wasn't it? It probably definitely was. What did you think? Well, well, I, I I agree that it was it, it probably was definitely a try. Can you say probably definitely? Yes, probably definitely a try. Definitely, maybe it, we're it, back on the music. <laughs> but but it, it had the uh, it had the ramifications of, of of kicking off a sort of discussion of the weekend of of the rugby that that became less was it was it or wasn't it a try? More um, is rugby nonsense? Are the laws rubbish? You know, it's become it, it, we 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 came into that sort of weekend. You know, Alex knows it now. A really good piece on on that, you know, r- rugby eating itself, like that that sort of stuff, which is so sad, really, because the, the Six Nations is so flipping splendid. So to to end week two with a debate on, um, you know, h- how silly rugby has become is uh, a real shame. Yeah, yeah. The other piece that was good, which is sort of relevant because it was part of the Scotland France game. And was this another kind of legal thing? Was this Dupont Law thing, Stuart? The if if you if you get into this kick battle, all the players in the middle of the field are allowed to stay where they are, because if if the kicker moves five meters, everyone can charge him. So that that's happening quite a lot now, isn't it? And the game's sort of breaking a bit. And John Barkley wrote about the ridiculousness of that in the Times. Is that <laughs> it's another one of those things where you think, well, the law's an arse at the moment, is it? Well, uh, coaches and players find loopholes, and that's what they've done with this. Um, it's quite straightforward, you know. The kicker puts everyone on side, and the sooner, uh, and uh, there is a danger, and we can all say, "Oh, it's so straightforward what you've got to do." And it has led to rugby for twenty years having these little tinkering law changes. But something like that—that's in the open now. Um, uh, and frankly, you know, the kicker puts everyone on side. You can't chase until then. And if the kicker's not in front of them, then you've got to stand there like a statue until that moment comes. And that changes it all very quickly. Um, on, on the other one, that concerns, that, that's of greater concern because that is, um, that basically says protocol is more important than personality. And it's rubbish. I, I've read so many. Um, esteemed ex-players saying well it was a try but protocol says so so in the end it was the right decision it wasn't the right decision because the referee was in place and from where he was he is expected without the need to refer to any technology to say yay or nay Barry's instinct was try he was that far away he was in a better place than any camera 
And who wants a camera? Who needs a camera? Who needs a bunker outside of the game to make that call? All that has to happen is the, uh, players, clubs, countries, and we as media have to buy into this package that occasionally there will be errors. And we're very poor on that because when there is an error, we are too busy screaming blue murder ourselves. So we are culpable too. And the fans have got to accept that. In that instance, the right call was to give a try. Uh, we didn't need technology. And that is a, a pure case of the bunker and technology, um, which was there to help the game, to help the referee. It's depowering them. It's like cricket. Don't make a decision if you don't have to. There's someone else will do it. Technology is not God. Yeah. Can, can I just can, can I just go back on the business of accepting mistakes and errors and that? Um, Will said that the law was an ass, but I'm sure the law is an ass, isn't it? And I, 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 don't, I don't expose him for, for making an error, but it is an ass, isn't it? I've well, always thought it was an ass. You exposing my ass, are you? Yeah, yeah. Well, That's I don't know. Are we, are we talking about posteriors or donkeys? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure the law, the law is a donkey. I am, um, but then I'm with you. We're being led yeah. by a donkey, it seems as well. Alfie's gone on holiday, and it's all gone to pot, hasn't it? Nightmare. Yes, the law is an ass, not an ass. No, we, we've got we've got a thoroughbred leading us today. We're going to have to. Hugo, our new producer for the next few weeks, is going to have to put an explicit warning on this now because we've said the word ass quite a lot. Well, and you just, it, uh, uh, Owen, and just done it again. Will has just dissed Hugo. No, is, that, is this this is like clickbait talking talking about asses on on a, <laughs> on a podcast. You'll never guess what they said we're, about that. Yeah, we're going to get so many people listening now. <laughs> well, I tell you what. While we've got the people listening, why don't we talk about some rugby? Because that's maybe why some people have tuned in. Um, should we go? We were all at Twickenham sitting next to each other on our back row of the press box. Um, what do we make of it? So, England won to their credit, two from two, haven't been two from two for five years since 2019. When it feels weird that actually, when you look back on it, seeing how well France and Ireland have been in the last few years, that those were the two that England won that, that opening two in 2019. They, they won away in Dublin and then absolutely thrashed. Um, the DuPont and Intermax, one of their first games, Six Nations, 44-8, was the French one. But this is a very different England team. It's a young, callow team. They've won two games. Do they get credit for that, Stuart, just the two wins? Well, hold on. Steve Borthwick was saying this before the tournament started, and he said, we've got to start fast. And he didn't mention that Scotland has been their opponent the last three years. And that's why are England starting fast because they played the two worst teams in the tournament. I, until they beat someone, until they beat someone, there's no credit for the wins. I said this before the tournament started. Performance is the key because if England don't get their performance right, when they play better teams, they will not be winning matches. And without wishing to sound like a killjoy, if you look at England's performance against Italy and Wales, you, you give them some credit for trying to get away from the one-dimensionality of, uh, of their World Cup and 2023 campaign. But in terms of accuracy, in terms of the intelligence of their game, the variety, you know, overall performance is, is not there. And three points in, in Rome... Ireland beat them 36-0 with half a team missing at a canter. That gives it some context. Uh, two points at home to a Welsh team that is quite young, even when they've got most of their players available. And they didn't have all of their players available. So I, I, I don't buy into two wins out of two is a good start for England. Uh, I think I give them marks for attempting to, to vary their game the quality of performance is all I'm looking at at the moment, and it's not there, I'm afraid. Not yet. I, I suppose it, it's two wins from two is better than t two losses, isn't it? Or one from two. So I suppose yeah, on that front... Hang on, what sort, of, what, but what sort of theory is that? It's better with... Yes, of course it's better, better to win. <laughs> narrowly than losing, yeah. but it's still not good. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, that theory is an ass, isn't it? It is. A, <laughs> well, I think it's an ass, but... It's an ass. Donkey. So, Slotty, what do you do? You give them credit for it's the Borthwick phrase if they found a way to win, and and he said it a lot now because they have done it a few times, and I suppose the sort of 
reaction the other way is to go if you can find a way to win earlier in the game that'd be probably a bit better but um do they do they get the credit for that comeback like it's according to the statistician Russ Petty it was only the second time in I think 72 tests where England had been nine points down and won a match the last time being Argentina in 2002 so the yeah. way they're hooker by crooking these games is, there's some credit in that is there yeah, I, 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 I certainly think so. I mean, I, I think we've, I've been used to seeing a lot of it games sliding away from England over the last few years. So, so that kind of mental metal, if you like, is 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 great, and it, it's something to build on. Um, uh, as Barnsley said, they, 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 there are um, signs that they're trying to do more. There, there was a moment um, quite early on when they were when they were, were sort of trying more. Where, where two players in a row tried um, offloads and both offloads hit the floor. I think it was Slade and, and then and then Daly. And you looked look at that and you, you didn't know whether to to applaud the the intent or to hold your head in your hands because it because it failed so so badly. But um, it, 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 I think you you've got to applaud the intent more because if you're not trying, then you're never going to do that that stuff. Um, does it allow them to build? Well, it might do. The thing about England is um, they, they seem to only, uh, over the last, over recent year and a bit, I suppose, they, they, they don't seem to play well against the lower teams, but they're, now, but they're now getting nudging ahead of them and then appear to raise their game against the better teams. I mean, you know, they lost to South Africa by a point. They have run Ireland close or close-ish twice when they've been playing with 14 men. Um, so they always seem to have improvement in them when the calibre of the opposition goes up. So I don't know if that means they play better rugby when over the next three games, which which they'll have to, which they'll have to, or they'll they're just harder to beat when they play against the the, the better sides. But I think we can all agree that that what they've done against Italy and Wales ain't going to beat any of the other three. Yeah, and I suppose the, the thing that we've heard a lot of from Steve Borthwick in, in lots of bits of his uh, reign, but this time as well, is this lack of time they've had together. And I don't know whether he's trying to angle for more of it, really, because he's not going to get it. Because um, the first week was we've only had three training sessions and then it's all oh, it's a quick turnaround to Wales. But now that excuse is gone, hasn't it? Because they've got a full fallow week. I think the players are having a couple of days off, coming back this Wednesday. Um, then they'll build all the way into Scotland. And it'll be interesting to see whether Scotland are sort of, I don't know, taken at the knees by that horrible <laughs> defeat at the end by France or galvanised. But that's a place that England haven't won for a long time now. And they've got a long way to build towards it. And they've, as you wrote in your piece this morning, Stuart, in Monday's Times, they'll have some cavalry coming back, possibly Ollie Lawrence. Do you think he would be a guy that would, would help change the way they can play a bit in the midfield? Well, he, he could, yeah. I'd like to see him at 13, but the, the key is what can make a difference, who can make a difference. Ollie Lawrence can because um, England don't have penetration in that position, but at the moment they don't have the inclination for penetration. And it's all well and good saying, yeah, they've, they've won two, so they're in a position. They normally beat Italy, they normally beat Wales, um, they normally play no rugby. This time they're trying to play a bit things are not that different really and you know i hear this thing about when you're talking about the more players sorry more time for the players the players heads are cluttered i can see it i can see it now they're either cluttered or they're empty and the art of coaching is finding the in between somewhere and they're not doing that just england should sit down and watch Ireland play. Uh, Owen's point about the offloads. Off offloads come not because not always because of the skill of the offloader, but the understanding of the support players. And England, Steve, Steve has had England for a year, and there hasn't been any support lines. There is a there is a coaching crisis. It's quite obvious. Um, you're not allowed to say it, but it's true, and um, that's why. Yeah, Ollie Lawrence could make a difference, but the biggest difference will be clear thinking amongst the team. And, that, that, and, and that's why I keep going back to performance. The results are irrelevant. In, England are, are sort of, this, this whole thing they're saying about, well, we've got a decent start, we could be better. 
it's got the other way is the truth. We have to be better, and we've got a decent start in terms of results. I feel like I'm I'm being the positive to your negative each time here, Barnsley. But I'll, what I'll say on the coaching thing maybe is that I think it's it's very obvious how much of an impact Felix Jones has had. And I know sometimes we say a defence coach coming in, it's it's possibly the easiest area to have an immediate impact because it's all about sort of heart and aggression and playing for each other and stuff like that. But it does seem that he's had more of an immediate impact than Kevin Sinfield did this time last year. Because you can see now England are really going after um, the opposition in defence, like Maratoji well, getting Young Lloyd by the well, line. Can we? Can, I'm, I'm yeah, really I think sorry, you can, yeah. Uh, well, you can. How? I mean, Italy, how many points did Italy score against but, Ireland? Well, yeah, so, so what oh, I would say is... How many no, no. points did Italy score against Ireland? How many tries and yes. points did Italy but score Ireland against Ireland? are at a very, very different level to England, aren't they? Like, it's a chasm, isn't it? But, but, but so, so what, what are we... But, so this whole, this coach is making a difference. Well, yeah, he is at a level against Italy and Wales at Twickenham. Well, that's where it's going to be fascinating, isn't it? Because I think... Alex, when we did the piece after the Italy game, wrote that the great challenge of this new defence is going to be Finn Russell, particularly because of the way that he can manipulate yeah. it and find the space. And we were chatting, I was chatting with him on the phone and we were thinking about writing a piece about the defence again this week. And that we were coming up with possibly a slightly mangled analogy with cricket, where it's a bit like having a whole load of slips but leaving the covers open, isn't it? And saying to Virat Kohli or whoever... Right, if you can hit the perfect cover drive through and we'll go fair play, good shot, but we're going to back that we're going to nick you off six, seven, eight times out of ten. Whereas England are leaving huge gaps, aren't they? And they're going, if you think you can nail the cross kick, which Johan Lloyd tried a lot and didn't nail it that often, then fair play. Or if you can nail the, the brilliant miss pass, good on you, but we're going to back ourselves to sack you behind the game line more often than not. Does that does that make sense? Does that sound like it? Yeah, works? I think you're compl- I think you're completely right. That's that is exactly what they're doing at the moment, and and it does make sense. And I, I didn't want particularly to diss Felix Jones or the defence, but what I was trying to say is England haven't played against anyone yet, and and until they play Scotland, I don't think we should be knocking their defence or praising their defence. We'll see when they come up against Scotland, France, and Ireland. You know, uh, th- there's no point saying, "Oh, he, he, they've made, um, they've made." They, they England are, are leaking more tries now than last year, aren't they? Italy scored two tries against England last year, and Wales scored one. I'm sorry, but we have to. There has to be a, a deep context here. Italy and Wales proves nothing except England can beat poor teams. The World Cup proved nothing except England can beat poor teams. And when England start beating good teams, I will say, great, there's your positive progress. We can see it. But we haven't seen it. So I'm damned if I'm going to say it. Very true. Very true. Yeah. So should we talk about Wales a little bit too? Because it's it, the Six Nations is such a nightmarish competition, isn't it? Because they were horrendous in the first half against Scotland, but lost by a point. And then they were actually pretty good with, as we've said, the callow team against England but just maybe didn't have the experience to see it through. And then naught from two. But Warren Gatlin sitting in the press conference afterwards being like, I'm really excited about the way this team can build. And we think, I think we can have a bloody good team here. So it's, but it's but they're naught from two. And they've got to play um, France and Ireland coming up, haven't they? And Italy. So you're thinking, blimey, where's the wind coming from? But how do you contextualise them, Slotty, that, having seen them on, on Saturday? I think they're incredible, really. I mean, I I wrote a piece on Saturday morning saying that there, there was no, they had no right really to believe that they, or, or there, there was there was no there was no strong argument to say that this should be a contest in terms of the established um, experience and talent in the England team um, that that it just didn't it didn't match up at all. Uh, I think what Warren Gatlin's done in no time with a new team is is really astonishing um uh and and that sport that's kind of that you know if it was logic then we wouldn't bother to watch but it was it's i find it slightly illogical um how fast they've come so quickly 
now, as you say, what have they achieved? Well, they're, they've got two defeats from two. So at some point that, that, that has to change. The, the, the thing about their players is they, they lose almost every week when they're playing in the URC or in, in, or in Europe. So defeat is such a familiar experience for them. And in, in Gatlin's previous regime, he made Wales, the, playing for the national team, the, the great exception. And the players would come in to, to, to Wales camp thinking, well, well, we'll we'll start winning again now because we're back with the national team. So uh, I I hope that the team I hope that that kind of um, mindset uh, is triggered here here again. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I suspect they'll they'll end up um, uh, losing four and beating Italy, and uh, and that wouldn't be so awful if they come away with it at the end of that thinking, yeah, we're building. But if they come away from that thinking, oh, we just lose all the time, then. Then that's not so. Uh, that's not so great. But, but this is when the the you, how you frame it, it's everything, and 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 it, ha, it it enables you to understand how good or not good the manager is. Gatland is sensible. He's framing it not in the context of winning games because he knows about uh, the state of Welsh rugby at the moment. Apologies. He's framing it in the light of performance. And then at some stage, the performance reaches a level where they have to win and then you judge them. And that's where Wales are performance and then they're saying, if we get that right, we will at some stage get the win because we're moving up. And Gat, that's what Gatlin talks about, curves, upward curves. Whereas perhaps we in England are too much. Uh, we keep saying, well, England are too But we should be looking at the performance. So Wales, Wales I think, are analysing... Um, their performance, the, the, sorry, their situation the right way. I'm not so sure we are. The right way as in it's not so much about the wins, it's more about the performances at this stage and their development. Yeah, you mean? Because, you, because you, won't win, you, won't win the, you won't win the big games unless you get the performances. You know, England for last season and the season before, they, they were two for three going into France and Italy and they got nowhere. Now this again, this is a, a stat that doesn't we don't like very much because it doesn't it doesn't lend itself to what we're being told. But England lose to Italy, they uh, they they lose to Wales. Sorry, they beat Italy, they beat Wales, and then it goes wrong. Nothing nothing has happened this year that has been different to the last two or three. Yeah, uh, nothing. And that's... It's, it's it's all there. The only thing that's the only thing that England are relying on is us not to have a memory. <laughs> And that's where they can change it in the next three weeks, can't they? Because yes, been... of course they can. Of course they can. And if anyone who's English, and I'm English and I play for England, I want to see them win games. But I'm not saying any way, anyhow, because any way, anyhow, will not lead to victory. It'll lead to what it's led to for the last three years, which are defeats against better teams. They have to perform against weaker teams to prepare themselves for better teams. I think that that's the hope with England, isn't it? And like maybe I'm trying to be positive because I've got bored of, of being negative for the last few years about them. But um, yeah, if they've beaten the teams they usually beat and now they've got the teams they usually lose to. So if they take out one or two of them, then it's far better and about where they should be in par, whereas the previous three seasons have been below par. So we'll see how they get on from there. But let's park our, our England and Wales chat there and... Have a little look at um, Ireland-Italy, which is a little bit one-sided, wasn't it? As probably expected. So up next, we'll touch on that game in Dublin. OK, so to the final game of the weekend, as expected, Ireland dispatched Italy. Six tries, 36-0, an emphatic start to their back-to-back -back Grand Slam defence. Business as usual, Barnsley? Very good. Um, they rested half a team. Um and they outclassed Italy as expected. Um, their offloading game is really good because their support lines are brilliant. They they do remind me of New Zealand, um, the way they play when they don't have the ball. And I don't mean when Italy have the ball. I mean when someone else has the ball and, and our teammate charges off in support. There's always... It must be a delight to be a ball carrier for Ireland. You can go left, you can go right, you can chuck it behind you. They've got men there. They're, they're very impressive and um, the Lions are extremely lucky to have Andy Farrell leading them because he's doing a magnificent job. Yeah, it's always remarkable to see it. You, 
I always think with it, I know trying not to drag it back to England all the time, but with England, you think they're always in this situation where they're they're blooding new things and new players and, oh, it's going to all take time, whereas Ireland have got to this position having built for a number of years where they can just drop in players to the system and it all clicks quite nicely. Like Yeah, I mean, we talked about it at the top, Barnsley, but this, this whole back-to-back Grand Slam thing is, is something that we're going to keep talking about for the next few weeks. And my point on it is I really don't think it's going to be as easy as... Um, some people, it's not the Irish team themselves, but people around the Irish team are going, here we go, grand, back-to-back Grand Slams. Like, There's a reason why it hasn't happened since 97, 98. And like, even though it looks like it's on, they've, they've, they've got some tricky games to come. Like, I don't, we don't think England are at an amazing level yet, but they've got to beat them. They've still got to beat Scotland. They don't lose to them very often, but it's not going to be that easy to just do this at a canter, is it, Barnsley? It might be. Might be, uh, unless England pick up their performance level at Twickenham uh, and find a, a, a mighty uh, forward effort to deprive Ireland of ball. Um, Wales, do Wales have an earthling against them? I don't think so. In the World Cup, Ireland destroyed Scotland in 40 minutes with one of the finest displays I've seen. This Ireland team, uh, I mean, it's not... There's, there's not been a back-to-back Grand Slam since Six Nations. Uh, it is difficult, but if you get a great team, it can be done. And I think I think we're looking at a, certainly the greatest island team in in their history. But I, I think we'll be saying by the end of the season, it's the, it's the greatest Irish team of all time. And I think when you start applying those sort of epithets, maybe. Maybe it'll be easier uh, than some of us think. Well, I, I, I don't see anyone getting near them. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'd be remarkable if they were to do it. And the only team that have got close to it was England under Eddie Jones, 16 into 17. They came a cropper in Dublin, didn't they? So we'll see if they can do it. Um, but that's, that's our rattle through of all the games. But before we go, we better do the usual God, goddess, devil. Are we going to get a devil this week? Slotty, should we should we kick off with you for a for a nomination? Yeah, I mean it, it would be easy to go for um for Nick, Nick Berry, wouldn't it? For um for as your devil of the week, um because he lost a game for Scotland. Um, for 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 me, I, I'll stick on the same plan. I, I love this new devil thing. Let's do this more often. Uh, I hated the refereeing of the England game. I absolutely loathed it. Um, there was there was England trying to build a crowd and an atmosphere, and we talked about that. And there's so much more to go. But if you've got a referee that's slowing the game so much, that's I, I I went back through part of the second half yesterday. In between minutes 50 and 61, there were three scrums, and and collectively those scrums took up six minutes worth of time. I mean. It, it was it it was just appalling, and so yeah, no, I I uh, having watched the whistleblowers podcast, uh, whistleblowers um, documentary, and feel that I should be very um, understanding of the tough role that uh, referees play. I will I will I'll make James Dolman the uh, my devil of the week. I think I, uh, yeah, I think it's one of those where you're not necessarily targeting him, but it's it's this thing of the. The laws an ass again, isn't it? Of the, we need to tweak things. We need to make sure that the game keeps moving because too often it's falling in a heap at the hour mark, isn't it? In lots of these test matches, Barnsley. Uh, here's my devil: technology and those that believe it is the answer to everything. Um, it's not. Uh, it was technology more than a human error that caused the problem, at Murrayfield. And what about my God of the Week? I'm going to mention an Englishman. I'm aware that people think I give them a hard time. I only give them a hard time because I'm looking at it as logically as I can. But I don't think um, enough people have talked about the quality of the performance of Ben Earl at number eight. Not just the try. His whole game was exceptional. And I thought in, in a mediocre match, Rafael for Wales and Earl for England stood out. Yeah. Okay. Nice nomination there. That that um, that old try was really reminiscent. I think they were mentioning it after the game of Delalio, and I think it was about two thousand where he's carrying several yeah, Welshmen yeah. off his back. It's quite rare, isn't it, that you see a 
one of those number eight picks that just goes straight over the line, isn't it? It was interesting because if you look at it, um, Fraser Dingwall picked an absolutely fantastic line. This was a well-coached, well-worked move. He came off it left to right and Dingwall was zeroing in to pick him up and drive him over. But he got tangled up with a Welsh tackler who couldn't make the tackle. And in the end, he didn't get there. And Earl just did it on his own. And it, it was a bit like Lawrence. Although I, what I would say is, um, shape-wise, they're different. Lawrence is a little bit taller and rangier and a raw power. Um, geez, Ben Earl has put on some timber, hasn't he, in the last six months? Yeah, he, he said he has, has yeah. He's put on a lot, and and that helps his carrying game. I mean, uh, he's a great number eight. I still wonder, maybe, I still wonder whether Lawrence 13 and Ben Earl 12 isn't the ideal thing, (laughs) but I'm not going to get my way. Well, that was interesting. So we were chatting with Richard Hill um, last week. The first time he's appeared in the media for quite a while, but he's been a team manager and has sort of had an expanded role under Steve Borthwick. And he didn't mention a name. But we were asking him about players that he thought could change positions. And he said, I've, tr- I've really tried with one particular player to convince people he should be a centre, but I was a vote- outvoted 99 <laughs> times. And we all thought, well, it must have been Ben Earl. So he, he obviously reads your stuff, Barnsley. No, he's just a... He, Richard, Hill, Richard Hill knows his rugby very well. It, yeah. might, be, it might be that I'm on, on Richard Hill's wavelength. Um, but that... That's a sort of a problem, though, uh, endemic in, in the English national setup. Um, the box is shut. The box is shut. It's got to be opened up at yeah. some stage because because we just don't have the wherewithal to change the gear of English rugby. We've got some really good players coming through. Some of our club teams in England are playing excellent rugby, but there has to be an, a spark, something to ignite them. And if we just say, let's just keep doing the same things, that ignition is not going to come. It's just going to, it's going to, it's going to fade out and something has to do that. And if you look at, it's not just how he plays. If you look at the persona, everything about Ben Earl tells me he's the sort of bloke who can change this team and what they don't need incremental coaching gains. And I get the feeling that's the way England think they need an explosion from within on the pitch. And yeah. he can do that. Well, to, to wrap it up, you mentioned him earlier in talking about Bernal. I think I'm going to give my God of the Week to a man on the losing side. I know you're a man that likes to sometimes give man of the matches to people who didn't win. But um, Tommy Raphael, I just thought for a couple of weeks now, he's carrying Wales on his back a fair bit with the, the turnovers he wins and the lines he cuts and... He's an exceptional player. And I know we talk about it a lot, but it's absolutely remarkable, isn't it, how many brilliant sevens Wales produce. Like Jack Morgan, I I was was walking through town in Twickenham on um, Saturday morning and saw him having breakfast in one of the little cafes and thought, oh, yeah, I forgot about him. Like (laughs) He was almost in the team of the World Cup and he's not playing and they've got this other bloke, Rafael, who's... Uh, as brilliant as him, it's remarkable how many they produce, isn't it? Well, we, we, you know, we got our own Sam Orbiton, who we're fortunate yeah. to have writing for us, Justin Tipperary. I mean, yeah. I, to, yeah. to this day, I, Warburton, they were different sorts of players, shall we say, but Tipperick was a better player than Warburton in some ways. Warburton was better in others. It's incredible. I mean, this is well, it's just but 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 seven is an intelligence position, it's an understanding of the game. Uh, I think, you know, I lived there for a while. They're struggling at the moment, but there is an innate understanding at, at a younger age, I think, in Wales. And it, it, that's what helped breed seven. If you said, name me another country that always produces great sevens, I would say New Zealand until Sam Kane, which I think was an error. And why did New Zealand do it? Because they understand the game. Someone like McCaw wasn't the fastest he wasn't the biggest he wasn't the hardest hitting tackler he wasn't the most brilliant runner but he knew everything about the game and, and Tommy Rafael in that way is very much like him and Wales in their own way even though they don't have a huge um, player base and they haven't got immense power there's still an understanding about the game and maybe that helps sort of help them get a little bit closer than people thought they would at Twickenham yeah, well, there you go. We've we've got 
all our gods. We've got a devil in there as well. But that's that's been the Six Nations round two in the can, done and dusted. A fallow week now. So, but we will be back on Monday um, for another pod, looking at the Calcutta Cup and Ireland, Wales, and um, Italy, France, and all all that jazz. But for now, thank you for listening. We said last week, Alfie said last week, that we've now created an email, which is very 2024 of us. So if you'd like to get in contact, we haven't managed to delve into the mailbag today, but you need to email theruck at thetimes.co.uk and we'll try and have a look next week and delve into your questions. But for now, thank you for listening. Thank you to Barnsley. Pleasure. Thank you, Will. Well done. Well hosted. Thank you. Slotty's had to leg it, as did Alfie, as did Brian McNeese. But for now, thank you very much for all tuning in, listening. This has been The Rock from The Times of The Sunday Times. Follow and subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back next Monday for more. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 